You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hello and welcome Pilgrims, and I can't actually believe this is episode 30 of The Myth Pilgrim. How time has flown! I remember being ecstatic when I got to episode 10 and now we've like tripled that and so many more episodes to come. Just want to say a big thanks to all of you for making doing The Myth Pilgrim so worthwhile and for all of you sharing this podcast with all your friends and family and stuff. Lots of uh, love coming your way. Okay, so you've probably heard of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, but I bet you haven't heard of Harry Potter and the Neglected Beatitudes. Well, you're about to, because I felt led today to hone in on those famous Blessed Are You passages from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. These eight teachings, uh, sometimes referred to as the uh, New Testament equivalent to the Ten Commandments, are as mysterious as they are ignored. Because honestly, they don't make much sense initially. What on earth does it mean to say that those who mourn and are poor and are persecuted are the most blessed? Should we intentionally put ourselves in such a position? What of wealth and health and good friends? To break open these questions, I've enlisted young Harry Potter as both a teacher and a model. As I touched on episode 17, you might be surprised how Christ-like Harry is in terms of his personhood and his mission. In fact, a beautiful article in the Weekend Australian uh, last weekend labelled Harry Potter as, I quote, the greatest contributor to the public good in the Western world in the last 20 years, with the article going on to say, the principal archetype that Harry Potter taps into is the saviour as suffering servant. J.P. Rowling has revisited the New Testament, adapted it and brought it to life for very different times, ones to which it has demonstrated a singular capacity to communicate. Her Messiah does save the world, taking on its sins, its weaknesses, and its errors. He releases it from evil, allowing its inhabitants to live freely and happily. The lights are switched back on. End quote. Wow, and this is from a otherwise secular newspaper. So in terms of the structure of today's episode, I will begin by reading through the eight Beatitudes, and providing a brief context of them within the Sermon of the Mount. Then I will explore the three Beatitudes that I feel Harry embodies most profoundly, and use examples from the saga to illustrate how they might look like in our own context. The aim of all of this is to make the Beatitudes more tangible for us, and to stir up desire for them in our walk of faith. Needless to say, a massive spoiler alert for those who haven't read or finished the Harry Potter stories. Okay. So let's begin now by reading through the eight Beatitudes, which I'll be taking from Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those for hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there they are, the eight Beatitudes. To appreciate the significance of these statements, we must firstly recognize the importance of the larger Sermon on the Mount, of which the Beatitudes form the opening act, if you like. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is presented as the new Moses, the new lawgiver and teacher of God's people. In the Old Testament, Moses had to cross the Jordan River, venture through 40 years in the wilderness, and then ascend Mount Sinai to receive God's laws and teachings. In a likewise manner, in the New Testament, Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan River, wanders 40 days in the wilderness, then ascends this Galilean mountain to give his new law and his new teaching which we collectively now call the Sermon on the Mount. But here's the big difference. Whereas the old Moses teaching focused on our external actions, like how to speak well, and how to do right worship, and to avoid killing and stealing, Jesus' teaching focuses more on the interior motives. The Sermon on the Mount challenges us to reflect on the interior attitudes of the heart, and not just our actions. Only with this in mind can we truly understand why even looking at a woman lustfully is committing adultery in the heart, and why Jesus encourages his followers to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. For Jesus is shifting the focus away from just right actions and onto right attitude. Seen in this light, perhaps we can understand why Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law and to complete the law rather than to replace them. See, action and attitude are important in the spiritual life. With that in mind, let's now cast our minds back to the Beatitudes. We're supposed to be scandalized by each Beatitude because they apparently flip our understanding of happiness on its head. But they only appear this way because sin has caused us to stand on our heads. <laughs> Jesus is the right way up, and the degree in which we don't understand each Beatitude is the degree we don't understand Jesus, and by extension, Christianity. For the Beatitudes are in fact the perfect description of Jesus' person, ministry, and mission. It's even said that the eight Beatitudes perfectly illustrate Jesus' interior state when he is upon the cross. For there on the cross our crucified Lord is poor in spirit, mourning, meek, thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure of heart, making peace, and persecuted. Profound. But is this how we usually measure our blessedness? Certainly not I. Give me the worldly sense of blessedness any other day, you know, success and wealth and security and friends. But then how do we reconcile Jesus' teaching with our lived experience? This is where our great mythical heroes can come to our aid. If I had the time, I would spell out for you how Harry and all the other good guys like Dumbledore and Sirius Black exhibits pretty much all eight Beatitudes. But due to limited time, the three I have chosen to explore this episode are Blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are the pure in heart, and Blessed are the persecuted. Let's now look at each one in detail. 
First is the first beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Note that the poverty mentioned here means more than just material poverty, even though poor in spirit certainly includes material poverty as well. When we first meet Harry Potter in book one, he already knows that he has nothing, and to the world he is nothing. He possesses nothing of his own, has no family, no friends, no status, not even a place to call his own. He lives under the Dursley staircase, if you remember. There's no such thing as magic. He had no idea who his parents were, what his own giftings were, or even the incredible prophecy and destiny that awaited him in the magical kingdom. Harry was, in J.K. Rowling's world, poor of spirit. While part of us may feel sorry for the poor chap with his glasses held together by duct tape, I bet there's something deep within us that is also quite envious to be in young Harry's position. For something in our spirit recognises, Harry is actually me, or at least, how I must become in order for my life to be a story worth telling. And while the explicit concept of God is absent in Harry Potter, you could say that Harry's internal poverty was precisely the means by which destiny was able to come in and take him away, firstly in the form of Hagrid. Had Harry lived a charmed life with many friends and comforts and gotten good grades and was filled with confidence and contentment, who knows whether he would have gone off with Hagrid, why Harry might have ended up just like his cousin Dudley, who even at the signs and wonders of Hagrid ran away in fear. So it goes with us Christians in the real world. How unblessed, how unfortunate are we when our happiness lies in wealth and security and success, for we end up no better than Dudley. How many are there? Thirty-six, counted them myself. Thirty-six, but last year, last year I had thirty-seven! Uh, yes, well, well, some of them are quite a bit bigger than last year. I don't care how big they are! But how blessed are we when we have none of those things, whose poverty within us allows us to be truly open to the lavish grace, waiting to be poured into our lives by the one who loves us? This beatitude celebrates that we are totally dependent on God for every breath, every thought, every action, and even every good deed. And that this truth lies at the foundation of the spiritual life. Any illusion we have that we can live independently of God is like a person who lives denying that gravity exists. They'd still be alive, but imagine such a person trying to build a house, for example. There'd be lots of frustration and pain and confusion, right? Not to mention falling beams and broken bones and bruises. But blessed is he who recognises that gravity exists, who builds his house properly according and respecting the laws of gravity. So it goes with recognising our spiritual poverty. To recognise that poverty is the native state of our soul is the foundation of building a flourishing life. You know, recently I rewatched the old 1950s cinematic epic movie, <laughs> The Ten Commandments. The scene that struck me most was when Moses was forcefully exiled from his royal identity in Egypt and made to wander into the wilderness alone. Listen to the film's narrator as he describes the former prince of Egypt being purified of every wealth and glory and put in touch with his spiritual poverty, a poverty that allowed room for the Lord to come and thus heralding his real life to begin. Into the blistering wilderness of Shur, the man who walked with kings now walks alone, torn from the pinnacles of earthly power, stripped of all rank and earthly wealth, a forsaken man, without a country and without a hope. His soul in turmoil, 
like the hot winds and raging sands that lash him with the fury of a taskmaster's whip. He is driven forward, ever forward, by a god unknown, for a land unseen. Each night brings the black embrace of loneliness. In the mocking whisper of the wind, he hears the echoing whispers of the dark. He cannot cool the burning kiss of thirst upon his lips, nor shade the scorching fury of the sun. All about is desolation. He can neither bless or curse the power that moves him, for he does not know from where it comes. Learning that it can be more terrible to live than to die, he is driven onward through the burning crucible of desert, where holy men and prophets are cleansed and purged for God's great purpose. Until at last, at the end of human strength, beaten into the dust from whence he came, the metal is ready for the Maker's hand. The next beatitude we'll look at is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now the usual interpretation of pure in heart is someone whose every desire is holy, and this is of course true. But biblically, being pure of heart has another meaning, an undivided heart. To live a life completely in union with God is the hallmark of a pure heart. Soren Kierkegaard once said that a saint is someone whose life is about one thing. This is a beautiful idea, but sadly, it is not the lived reality for most of us, especially in the Western world. We are instead distracted and harassed and restless, jumping from one task to another, one opportunity to another, one conversation to another, and one click to another. Even when we find our desires, for example, wanting to pray, our emotions are scattered, our minds are restless, and our bodies are ever craving. We are a divided, scattered lot, and everything in our society tries to keep it this way. This makes focusing on those final things a very confusing business. I'm going to propose that one of the reasons we love our mythical stories like Harry Potter is because right from the outset, it is very clear what the hero's story is about and what his life objective is. Even if Harry didn't know how things would pan out, we as the audience or readers feel soothed and assured knowing that Harry's story had a crystal clear aim to save the magical world through the defeat of Voldemort. After J.K. Rowling gives us Professor Trelawney's prophecy, you could say that every decision Harry makes, every relationship he builds, and every virtue he acquires was written to further this one aim. His life then became about that one thing, undivided, pure. And as Harry matures throughout the seven books, we see his heart becoming purer and purer, stripping away pride and popularity, friends and security, until finally, in the last act, he is able to give his very life for his one thing. This single-mindedness we see in our hero movies is what makes them so compelling, for our Frodo's and Katniss's and Bruce Wayne's remind us how attractive living with a pure, undivided heart can be. And this is why you won't suddenly find Harry darting off in Book 5 to join a singing competition at the Leaky Cauldron. As much as it would be nice that Harry learns to sing, we the readers probably wouldn't really care because his becoming a bard would probably not be conducive to his final goal. So it goes in the spiritual life. 
which shouldn't feel like a random series of events, but always oriented towards a deeper union with God and his story. How pure of heart do you feel today? Where do you feel divided and scattered from where the Lord is calling you? Perhaps in our hyper-distracted age, virtue does not lie only in saying yes to God, but also in saying no to the things that pull us away from the one thing necessary. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. The final beatitude exemplified by Harry is, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, perhaps it's pretty obvious to see how Harry could fit the category of one who is persecuted. His list of persecutors grow as his mission reaches its climax. First, there's Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia and Dudley, Malfoy, Snape, Slytherins, Wormtail, Snape, Death Eaters, Umbridge, Snape, Dementus, Barty Crouch, Snape, Bellatrix Lestrange, Snape, and even at the end, his best mate, Ron, turns on him. Oh, and let's not forget that Voldemort, he who must not be named himself, manages to find a new way every year to put Harry's life in mortal danger and his sanity at risk. That Harry is persecuted is without a question, but why? Is it blessed to be persecuted? Emotionally, it makes no sense. The key is in reading the Beatitudes properly. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not giving credit to those who receive persecution after they've acted rudely or selfishly or judgmentally of others. Rather, when we sincerely seek to act righteously according to the gospel, by definition, we will make enemies with those still wedded to the values of this world. This is what Jesus meant when he says in Matthew 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. To stand with Christ is to be cast out. For Christ himself was the cast out one. And the kingdom of God is built around the stone that was rejected. The Christian is never in the in-group. This is certainly true for Harry and his friends, and in the story, Harry doesn't need to actively oppose Voldemort for him to become an enemy. By simply standing up for truth and love, he has already drawn the battle lines. And like Jesus' own mission, it will be the enemy who comes to seek after him. But there's a deeper profound reason why this beatitude suggests persecutions are a blessing, and it is this. Persecution sets us free to actually follow God. If I were honest about my own heart, I know that one of the most difficult things to renounce is a good reputation and a good name. I want to be liked by everybody and have my words and actions approved by everyone I care about, or even those I don't care about. <laughs> this itself is not always a bad thing, but when the esteem of others prevents me from fully obeying God's will and speaking His truth, then I've turned the esteem of others into a towering idol. Those who are persecuted, however, need not smash this idol of worldly esteem, for it is already taken away from them, and they no longer are bound by what others expect of them. Thus, our martyrs and our saints 
testify that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes are the greatest disciples of all. Like that Moses passage I read out a little earlier, it is always necessary for that popular prince within us to be purged and stripped away before we are finally ready to follow God. As a way of concluding, I want to draw your attention to a line from episode 8 of the TV series The Chosen. If you haven't yet discovered The Chosen, I highly, highly recommend it to you for the series is able to capture the life and culture and context of gospel times in such a refreshing way, yet without compromising the truth of Jesus and the Bible. Anyway, in episode 8, Jesus describes the eight Beatitudes as a map. When the puzzle tax collector Matthew was like, why? why are sayings like blessed are the poor and persecuted a map? Jesus explains to him that if someone wants to find me, those are the groups of people they should look for. Mm. I feel this is a profound line that is worth reflecting deeply about, for it not only denotes the groups of people out there in the community, and they certainly exist, but more importantly, it denotes those groups of people within us too. Are you struggling to hear God and to notice His presence? Pray that you find within yourself the place where you are poor and persecuted, for they will provide a map to encounter the Lord. I will leave this reflection and a link to that chosen episode in the show notes and on the website as your practical pilgrim exercise. Okay, for now, journey forth, take care and God bless.